Welcome to the Evidence-Based Pilates Podcast with your host, Adam McAtee. This podcast provides you the tools and confidence to become a fearless and evidence-based Pilates instructor, which is exactly why we're going to dive right in. Welcome to this week's episode of the Evidence-Based Pilates Podcast, in which we are going to be discussing moving from fear to optimism, which is a very common uh, Pilates journey. Uh, I've been doing this for nearly 15 years, and I hope that I can provide some insight and some lessons that I've learned along the way to help you uh, grow uh, into the best instructor possible faster than, than I did. <laughs> right? So hopefully this can help save you some time. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break this down into three different topics in which um, like, like, like Pilates school is, is really, really awesome, right? And, and it's a, it can be a great foundation to grow from. And then a really common experience is that we leave Pilates schools being uh, afraid uh, in some way. It could be um, afraid of, of saying the wrong cue, right? A afraid of uh, not being good enough. There's like that whole imposter syndrome. Um, afraid of working with special populations or people in pain, right? And so, and then we, then over time, we, we grow and we, we end up becoming movement optimists, right? Like, like that's like that, the hierarchy is like, like we want to go ahead and be movement optimists, which means being like confident and skilled um, in our abilities to work with individuals, regardless of pain, injury, age, gender, sex, etc. Um, so uh, today's podcast will be like, first, we're going to talk about like certain like uh, contraindications or precautions that were that are commonly taught in Pilates school and how uh, we don't how, how a lot of times they don't quite do us justice in terms of uh, what science actually says. And then we're going to talk about how humans actually get stronger and how that's commonly not taught um, in, in Pilates school. And then also that pain is not the same thing as injury. And that's key. And that's really hard to understand at first. And a lot of times it's not, it's not mentioned in Pilates school. And, and these things are monumental. Like, like you, you have to know these. Uh, <laughs> right? I wish I knew these sooner. It took me like a decade to figure it out. And I hope that I can accelerate this for you. Um, so like a common, a common uh, condition that is taught in like the special populations part of any Pilates program, if your program had a special population section, would be uh, like a total hip replacement, right? The, the academic term is total hip arthroplasty, which just means total hip replacement. Sometimes these um, procedures are done uh, electively, meaning that like there's degenerative changes in the hip. Someone's been having pain for years and they choose to have a, a hip replacement, right? And, and we're really good at it, right? They're really successful. So, so that could be a good uh, decision for someone under particular conditions. Uh, or maybe someone like fell down, right? They fell down in the kitchen. It's pretty classic. Like I tripped on a throw rug, fell down in the kitchen, hip fracture. And so you end up having um, a traumatic uh, injury and therefore you get a hip replacement. Those, those are like the two common paths of like why this happens. So, uh, so you end up uh, getting a hip replacement and in a, a lot of times in like the special population section in, a, in like a, a, a workbook or whatever you want to call it, like a manual for Pilates school, uh, you'll have like, like total hip replacement and then like precautions or, or, or contraindications. And, and the three common ones would be uh, avoiding the leg from crossing the midline, avoiding an internal rotation of the femur, and avoiding um, hip flexion beyond 90 degrees, right? Now, they didn't just make this up, right? These are called hip precautions, 
right? They're, they're used in hospitals and all the things. However, um, there are, are a lot of details within that that are important to know to either justify them and or to really understand them and become confident working with them or recognizing why you don't actually need them. Uh, so the first thing to recognize is that all three of these motions, like the purpose of that or the hypothesis is that like all three of the motions are designed to avoid the femoral head from pushing up against the incision because the incision needs to heal, right? And then, uh, which makes sense, right? Like, like, like you have like a vulnerable part, so don't put a lot of stress on it. Um, but th there's a certain time where like that incision's healed, <laughs> like it's healed. Okay. So like, like these precautions, they they have a finite period of time and they're determined by the surgeon. Okay. So, uh, so if someone has hip precautions, like it's not forever. <laughs> and that's like, that's a huge, that's a huge fucking detail. Like that needs to be in every manual, like check in with the surgeons, um, the surgeon's guidance in terms of how long these are applied. Because if you're working with someone two years after hip replacement, they can move as much as they want. Okay. They're at no greater risk uh, for anything. So, uh, so anyways, so there's no precaution after that. Um, in addition, the, um, the hip precautions are not for every hip replacement. Those hip precautions are designed for a posterior lateral approach, which means that the surgeon did an incision on the backside and to the side. That's not the only way someone gets a hip replacement. There's also an anterior approach, which is becoming more and more popular over time. So if someone has an anterior, uh, anterior approach, those hip precautions mean nothing because they're not pushing the, fem the femoral head forward. Okay. They do nothing. And that's a huge detail, right? There are the, the, the only hip precautions I've ever heard for anterior hip replacement. And I, as I stand to be corrected is excessive range of motion. And how do you define excessive? It's totally subjective based on the therapist and based on, uh, based on the client or patient. So, but, but just understanding that and like, like that needs to be in the manual, right? These are only for a posterior approach. Well, how do you know if it's a posterior approach? Ask your client, right? Or, or, or get the records uh, from the surgeon. Uh, so that's important. And then there's more details, right? Like you gotta know, when you know more stuff, like you can become a whole lot more optimistic because there are plenty of systematic reviews and, and uh, meta-analysis that show that posterior hip precautions or any hip precautions, including posterior hip precautions, do not work. They sound good, right? Just like transverse abdominus activation sounds good for low back pain, but it doesn't work, right? And so when you apply hip precautions okay, to a, uh, when a surgeon applies hip precautions to a patient, they do not have a lower rate of dislocation because that's the whole point is don't do this so you don't dislocate your hip. They don't decrease the rate of dislocations. In fact, they decrease or they increase the time it takes to heal. So there's actually a negative effect on hip precautions because people don't move as much. They're afraid to move. Okay? So the current literature does not support using hip precautions. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't use them legally. I'm speaking from the United States where people sue for anything, right? If someone walks on my doorstep and they fall on my step, they can sue me, right? It's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> Don't go over my property. Um, so, but anyways, so uh, with this, if a surgeon, if you're at least here in the United States and you're working with someone 
and a surgeon applies hip precautions and you're working with them within the time frame that the surgeon has the hip precautions on there, you have to apply them. Regardless if you're a, phys a physical therapist or a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, personal trainer, et cetera, the surgeon is, is higher up on the healthcare hierarchy. You have to listen to them. Because if you don't and something does happen, regardless if it's related to what you're doing or not, you're fucked <laughs> legally, okay? So, so you have to, so sometimes you have to apply them legally, but if someone comes in and they don't have hip precautions, right? Like they have like an up-to-date surgeon and, and physical therapist, and now they're like on your Pilates reformer, they don't have hip precautions, you don't have to apply any hip precautions to that person. Just avoid excessive range of motion. You're good, yeah? And so, so zooming back out from like going from fear uh, to optimism, right? It, when we come out of Pilates school, it's like, oh my God, there's these like um, precautions on a hip replacement or else the thing's gonna pop out of the hip, <laughs> right? That was me, like that's how I felt. If I didn't do all this stuff, they're gonna die. Um, so like, you know, I need to peg you out for footwork. You can't go deep into some lunges, anything like that, right? Like I'm gonna put you in a bubble wrap so like I, so bad things don't happen. And then you can evolve over time and, and, and learn things like, uh, like how uh, there's different types of hip replacements. We're really good at them. Uh, precautions don't work, things like that. And you can become more optimistic when you're working with someone. Like you don't have that anxiety if they like start to do short spine, <laughs> right? Like they're fine, okay? They're, they're at no greater risk for dislocation. Um, you know, if they do, if, it, if they do those kinds of movements and the way you help that person is you build up strength and capacity within the hip and increase the range of motion while also building up the human and having them, uh, be optimistic and feel empowered within their own body. Um, now, so that's like total hip, that's just like, uh, exemplifying like confidence and movement optimism through like a total hip replacement while still being socially responsible and, and not putting yourself in a corner legally. Um, now, when it comes to like, uh, like another one is osteoporosis, right? So, so, so we work with older adults, a lot of older adults, like postmenopausal women are the most common people to have osteoporosis. And those are also like a really common population to be in the Pilates studio. Um, so, so a lot of times there's like a contraindication section for osteoporosis, right? Like bending, twisting would be, would be common ones or loaded bending and twisting. Um, I've seen them both ways in manual in a manual, uh, what, but what's, what's really, uh, like what's like a brand exploding emoji is like, there are no contraindications for osteoporosis. Yeah. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be careful, but there are no guidelines for osteoporosis that say these movements are contraindicated. What we do have are precautions. Precautions mean you probably don't want to do this. Contraindications means do not do this. So we, we have things that say we probably shouldn't do this, right? So legally, if that's all we have, we should listen to that just by default, okay? Because if, you're, if something happens, like you, like you end up um, you know, going against that advice and you're in front of a judge, like you don't really have a good argument, right? Like you're gonna lose your case and your client gets hurt. Um, so, so with this, like, like osteoporosis, there are precautions for like loaded flexion and twisting. However, in the ACSM guidelines, the language I suspect isn't, isn't, it's intentional, uh, but the language is extremely vague, extremely vague. 
it says avoid excessive bending and twisting and or I think it was like excessive loaded bending and twisting. Well, what, what's excessive bending? Is it past 65%? Like is it past 90? Like where, where is it? Right? So, so it's really, really big. And so we just really have precautions. So then, then we, um, you know, we're also taught that like resistance training is great for osteoporosis and it is. So we're like, all right, you get a red and a blue spring, right? We're going to increase that bone density, right? And, and it's not true. Like you, that's not going to do shit for anyone's bone density. Okay. It's like, like it's, it's better than not moving, right? But if we want to, what, what is really helpful to know in terms of increasing bone density or in osteoporosis, a lot of times it's really just decreasing the rate of loss is that you need to load them. Okay. Like 85% RM, which means like it's so heavy that they can only do like six repetitions. Okay. How the heck do we do that in Pilates? I have a whole course on this, right? On, on building strength, muscle and Pilates recommend it. I highly recommend it. But we've actually seen that if we have 65% or less RM, repetition max, meaning like 65% or less of your capacity okay, in an exercise, it doesn't do anything for bone. So, so when you look at like, like, um, like Instagram or whatever, and someone's like, oh, like, like I'm holding my cans of peas for bone density, it's, it, it's, 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 it's a little bit frustrating because it's like, oh, you're like, you still want to help, right? But it's like, that's, it's not true. Like, 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 and we, and we just need to know that, like, you need to be holding something freaking heavy and we need to load individuals with osteoporosis. And what's also awesome to recognize with that is you don't have to be afraid of loading people with osteoporosis. Yes. Are we going to avoid loading like, um, end range flexion and rotation? Yes, we will. Right. So like, are we going to do like the roll, like the, I wouldn't even go with the rollover, but like rollover with hand weights or like Jefferson curls, so, you know, holding a barbell, no way. We're not going to do that, but you can go ahead and load the body in a variety of ways that don't require end range flexion and rotation. And in fact, you need to, uh, for, for this population. So that's just like another example of like, we, we learn that like, we can't really move these people, right? We can't do flexion and rotation. Like I've literally seen that you just can't flex or rotate. Right. And there was like no description over that. Like it's straight up in a manual. Okay. Like you can't flex or, or rotate. Like how much of a misunderstanding is that? Holy shit. Um, so what it is, is you shouldn't do end range loaded flexion and rotation. Those are completely different things. And that's not a contraindication. Boom. It's a precaution because we don't really have strong evidence on that. Okay. Cause we don't have trials on this, which makes sense. Like who's going to volunteer for that trial? <laughs> okay. I wouldn't recommend my mother to kind of thing or anyone I cared about. So, so there's that. And then recognizing that like this, if you load any population, if you're like, I'm going to get one person stronger, I'm going to give them an extra strength. I'm going to give them two extra springs. It should be your client with osteoporosis. You just do it in an intelligent way of like not having them at end range flexion and rotation. Okay? Um, so that's like another example of like, oh, like I don't have to be worried about putting on an extra spring for that client. Hell no. Load them. Okay. Load them. Okay. Which kind of leads us to like that, like the part of our discussion, which is on, um, 
like how do humans actually get stronger? Okay, and uh, in, in, in Pilates is like incredible. I love it. I love it. And then there's just parts of it where it's like, oh, we could do so much better with our education. And so like we learn Pilates from an aesthetic point of view. Okay, a lot of times I, when I say we, I'm like 95% and over. Um, so like, like we're taught to like look at movement quality and how it looks and then make a judgment off of that to help someone achieve whatever goal they're trying to achieve. But alignment doesn't predict outcome, right? If you wanna get better at um, hiking and not getting so winded, you need to build endurance, you need to build aerobic capacity, you need to uh, build like end range knee flexion, hip flexion, right, and extension. Uh, you need to build lower extremity strength. Uh, if you're holding a backpack, you need to have endurance for your spinal extensors and flexors. But what you don't need is alignment protocols, right? Because like this, this is not it. Okay, like can we like make an adjustment to someone's alignment if they need something? Sure, right? But that, but it's not a hard rule of like like you must have your knee over your toe for footwork kind of thing like to help like that that's not helpful um what would be more helpful is like putting on an extra spring and having them do footwork on on one leg because humans get stronger by not by activating muscles in a certain alignment or feeling something they get we get stronger by loading tissue okay and by load i mean we put external forces onto that muscle or muscle group, okay? And as a result, your muscles don't have a choice but to activate if you're going to achieve the task, okay? So for, um, like what's a good example? A good example would be like, uh, if you're doing some kind of hip hinge, right? You're standing upright, you hinge at your waist, and then you come back up. And the instructor says, you should feel this in your hamstring. So we squeeze our hamstring. That doesn't do anything. <laughs> like it just um, allows you to feel that you're doing it right because now you're the feeling you're having is aligning with your with the instructor's beliefs on what you should be feeling. That's all that is. It's like it's like a social thing, but it's not an actual like um, I'm getting my muscle stronger thing. What's helpful to get your muscle stronger is for you to load that tissue more. It doesn't matter if you feel it or not, right? Like, like you'll feel it where you need to feel it. But, but humans get stronger by adding load. And, you, and to get someone stronger as a general rule, the, the load should be so high that you can't do more than 10 of them. And, and on like, like number eight or nine, right? You're gonna be like really tired. <laughs> and when you're really tired, you start to move a lot slower and your alignment gets, how do you say it, uh, creative. <laughs> right like it looks a little weird uh, kind of thing like you're actually like quote unquote out of alignment and those are indicators that we're applying enough stimulus to get you stronger and so with that like zooming back out from like moving from like fear to optimism is like you don't actually have to worry so much about your client's alignment now it doesn't mean that like alignment doesn't matter at all right like it matters it's just like uh, not the, the a big piece of the pine it's not going to get your clients stronger, okay? It may be helpful for whatever reason, 
but it's not like something you need to perfect. And in fact, if you only work in like uh, aesthetically pleasing alignment, all you've done is prepare your client to do movements that are aesthetically pleasing rather than doing a lot of movement variety and prepare them for the, their activities of daily living, which depend on the client, like whatever they, they end up doing. Um, so it's actually really advantageous to exercise out of alignment and to strengthen the body parts out of alignment, which takes a lot of pressure on you because you don't have to be like an x-ray machine and see everything that's going on in the body. But if you understand um, like just basic exercise principles such as progressive loading, uh, you can get people a lot stronger, right? So it takes a lot of pressure off, right? You can just be a lot more optimistic um, with, <laughs> with this. And, 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 a, and a big piece of that is like understanding that like, like how people get injured, <laughs> right? Because a common concern is like, well, I might hurt my clients, right? If they're out of alignment. Um, <laughs> Fun fact, right? People don't get injured. I, I, like the vast majority of injuries in, a, in any kind of exercise setting is not from exercises. It's from dropping shit and tripping on things. It's like from doing stupid things. Like if you wanna keep your clients safe, right? Well, teach them about the push through bar if you work on a trap table. That's, the, that's our version of like dropping things, it's like letting go of things with your hands. Um, pick things up off the floor. Make sure your floor is not wet. Right. If you have like high, if you have mats that are kind of raised off the floor, roll them up. People trip on that. Uh, so avoid trip hazards and things of that nature. Okay, that's how you're going to keep your clients safe. Um, and and then like even clients that are in like like um, pain, right? You can still load them and get them stronger. Um, because like another big thing is is recognizing that pain is not injury. Okay. Um, pain, by definition, is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that is associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. That is from the, the International Association for the Study of Pain. Uh, that, that is their definition. And, and, and it's a really long definition that, that, that tells you that, one, with pain, there's always, not sometimes, there's always an emotional a piece of it, which means our thoughts about our pain have a really big impact on the pain experience. And if an acute in, if an acute pain experience turns chronic, so if acute low back pain turns chronic, you know what's a really big predictor for that? Your self-efficacy, your expectations of recovery. You know what's not a predictor for that? Your lumbar lordosis, your anterior pelvic tilt, your hamstrings um, flexibility, your core strength. None of those predict if you're gonna go from acute low back pain to chronic low back pain. But are you getting enough sleep? Um, you know, do you, like, like what about, what kind of pain education have we provided our clients? Those things are predictors, okay? And, and, and that's where we can be like more like optimistic to be like, oh, like I'm working with a human, right? I'm not just working with a body, okay? Uh, because not only is like the emotional experience part of the pain, but the pain may not be related to tissue damage at all. And, and a really good uh, way to exemplify that is through something called uh, phantom limb syndrome. Uh, phantom limb syndrome is when an amputee, right, they get, they get like a limb amputated. Let's say it's like a below the knee amputee, which means that someone had their leg cut off, right, through surgery 
below the knee. So like they don't have a foot anymore. This is common in diabetics. Um, so they don't have a foot anymore, but that person can still experience pain in their foot. Like up to like, like they can experience it for a long time. Um, but it's like, it's like 95% or higher individuals that have an amputation still have pain in the amputated limb. So they literally don't have tissue. It doesn't exist and they have pain in it. And that is because pain is not tissue damage. Can tissue damage lead to pain? Hell yeah, it can. Like have you ever stubbed, like, like our stubbing your toes, not necessarily injury. Like if you break your leg, you know it's gonna hurt your leg because it's broken. <laughs> Like they can totally be related to each other, but they can totally not be related to each other as well because you cannot have a foot and have pain in that foot. Okay. Now you can also have injury, but like no pain. Okay. You can have tissue injury, but no change, uh, but no pain. A lot of times we just call it like degenerative changes. And so like an example would be um, like bulging discs. Okay. In the, like we, what, what happens is like we end up taking like MRI scans of people that have no back pain and we look to see what we can find and we find a shitload of stuff. So like, like a, I'll put this in the show notes, but a classic one is like, if you are over 50 years old, if you're, if you are 50 years old, okay, you have a 60% chance of having a bulging disc and you are within the bubble of 50 year olds that have no back pain. Whoa, right? So if your client comes in and they hand you a scan with a bulging disc, okay, from like two years ago or something like that, okay, if I were a new instructor, I would freak out. We are not doing any flexion, we are not doing any rotation. Oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? Freaking out, right? Like, I don't know what to do. Right? And then over time, you get a little bit better at it because you learn how to do exercises within that range of motion. And then as time goes on and we just, we just grow and like we learn more and, and things like that, we learn that like that doesn't change anything about exercises. Now, it's not to say that a, like a herniated disc can't be related to someone's pain, but when we, two things with this is like there's something called tissue healing times and then also, um, understanding what the symptoms of that would be okay in the statistics of low back pain so like tissue healing times for a bulging disc is between 12 and 18 months so between 12 and 18 months a bulging disc uh, within normal tissue healing times which not everyone's normal um, but like within normal tissue healing times that tissue should be healed so a scan from two years ago doesn't tell you anything like it, it's it's like it's like getting a weather report from 2020, it's like I don't, I don't care. Like it's, it's like it's. I mean, not that I don't care, but it doesn't tell you any useful information, right? Uh, but it could be meaningful to your client. So there's a whole social aspect to that. Okay. So understanding the tissue healing times, and then like recognizing that like for 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 a bulging disc or herniated disc, like tomato tomato, they're just different grades of the same thing. Um, so for that to generate back pain, it would be pressing on a nerve root. And that nerve root uh, takes a particular path. So you would have neural symptoms and the symptoms would like, they would go down the same side hip and the same side leg. And, and that could present in various ways. But if someone just has like aching pain, that's not from a bulging disc, <laughs> okay? 
if someone has like every time they twist to the right they back bend and they side bend to the same side and it shoots leg down their pain their pain down their leg like okay that makes a little bit more sense right so understanding like what that looks like and then also recognizing that that kind of back pain is only about five percent of back pain 90 to 95 percent of back pain uh, individuals are nonspecific, meaning we don't know what's wrong with it, which means that we have ruled out a nerve root like impingement or nerve root irritation. So I know we went down a little rabbit hole with, with, with pain or low back pain specifically, but I hope that, that this, this is helpful to be like, oh, like, like, like we start in like this, this, uh, this really broad like information right? Bulging disc, it pops out this way. Here's this model with this red thing to make you afraid of it. Uh, if you ever seen the spine models where it's like one disc is red and it's popping out, it teaches you to be afraid, right? It's nocebic. And so, so there's this thing, it's like, oh, red is danger, right? So that's dangerous, right? That's why it's red, by the way. And then, um, and then we're like, they, they, they twist the spine model and see it's going to go out. And, and we learn all these things. So we're afraid. And then our client comes in and we wrap them in bubble wrap, right? Like don't move. And then over time we get more skilled, you know, at, at, at whatever. And, and, and hopefully this has helped uh, facilitate a conversation to recognize that like, you don't have to be afraid of this stuff. Okay. Um, it's totally normal for people to have pain and pain does not mean injury. So if you're working with someone that has pain, it uh, does not mean that you're creating an injury for them and that what could be really important is how you talk about that pain with them. Okay? And at the end of the day, humans are incredibly resilient. Okay? Humans are not fragile. Okay? We do not break when a load is applied to us. Yes, there's a range, right? Like if a bus hits you, you might break, but like don't get hit by a bus. But like when we're talking about exercises, okay? You, your body, your client's body is anti-fragile, okay? Anti-fragile means that you need stress applied in order to get stronger, okay? Now, we, what, what, we, what you need to do is find the capacity, right? Like, what's the right amount of load that you cannot do more than 10 repetitions? And then as you apply that load over and over again, their capacity gets bigger, okay? You don't just break, you get bigger. You get greater capacity and then you can get stronger and you can do more things that you love to do. And at the end of the day, when we're growing from fear to movement optimism, it is freeing for you as an instructor, it is freeing for, for your clients, and you can just live your, your life and go through your career with so much more joy and compassion and so much less fear while teaching movement and also moving yourselves. And at the end of the day, this results in recognizing the, the nature of the human body and how it is, uh, is anti-fragile. And I encourage you to share that with as many instructors and as many clients as possible. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Evidence-Based uh, Pilates podcast, uh, where we talk about going from fear to movement optimism. And uh, stay awesome.
I hope you enjoyed this episode and in return, I would love it if you could leave a positive review so that I know that you're listening and benefiting from this podcast. I do this 100% for free from my spare time and I just want to help the Pilates industry learn and grow and when reviews grow on a podcast, they become more visible and therefore more helpful to the community. Um, as always, you're welcome to, to reach out to me personally as well for any of your thoughts, as well as a request for future episodes. And of course, if you'd like to learn more, you are welcome to go to the Evidence-Based Pilates platform with the link in my bio and browse any of the courses that we have to offer. Uh, have an incredible day.